0: And I think that that is a kind of definition of intelligence that can be applied to anybody who wants to, to, to do something. I mean, to do it, you have to get started. And you have to be able to take the appropriate level of risk and the appropriate level of discomfort, which is not too little, but just not too much.
1: Hello, and welcome to another episode of South Asian Stories. I'm your host, Samir Desai. In this episode, I chat with Azim Azar. Azim is an award-winning technology author, entrepreneur, and investor. He produces Exponential View, the leading newsletter and podcast on the impact of technology on our future economy and society, with close to 50,000 subscribers, including investors, academics, and journalists around the world. Azim brings a unique background to explain the intersection of breakthrough technologies and the economies and societies in which we live. An entrepreneur and investor in many technology startups, Azim speaks regularly on television and radio, including BBC, Sky, and CNN. His new book, The Exponential Age, is coming out September 2021, so be sure to grab a copy. In this episode, we discuss a lot, including the amazing history of Azeem's family and how he came to the UK and figured out his big love for Cadbury, facing 57 job rejections after graduating from Oxford University, and Azeem's start on Exponential View and the new technology he's most excited about. Azeem's view of the future was fascinating, and there's so many interesting tidbits in this interview. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Azeem Azhar. Azim, welcome to South Asian Stores. We are
0: delighted to have you. Uh Samir, it's really great to be here. And I was really taken by the uh theory and the practice of your podcast. So I'm excited to talk with you.
1: Yes, yes. Uh, we we are thrilled to have you. And um, as I was saying before we started recording, I'm a huge fan of your work and um, a subscriber to your your newsletter, which has just been one of my joys of opening uh, when I get it once a week and um but I want to start at the beginning you know and and tell me about Azim and his childhood where did you grow up and how south asian was your family and any favorite memories growing up
0: yeah well thank you for for asking that um it's a very interesting um uh, and mottled patchwork uh of a of a story that probably is best not started with with me uh and it probably start best started with my my dad and my my mum so um my dad was uh born in uh what was then known as british india uh in a place called mandi Hira singh uh which was uh near lahore um was, as you might guess from its name, uh, an area that was a uh, mixed Sikh and Muslim. Uh and, you know, after the independence of Pakistan and partition and so on, the family had by that point moved uh much more close to Lahore. And my dad ended up um coming to the UK uh in his early twenties, where he did his uh, postgraduate uh work in um in economics, in rural development economics, uh, and he was at Oxford University, uh, and he became a British citizen at that point. Uh, and then, doing it as happens, he went back to Pakistan to to take a job and and you know get married. Uh, and married my uh, ma- married a woman who then subsequently a decade later became my mother. Uh, she well, maybe that's the wrong way of putting it, but uh, I, I arrived a decade later. Um, and my mum's story is quite interesting as well because my dad's is quite traditional um, with this wrinkle that he went off and did graduate studies abroad and then then came back. My mum's story um, is is different. So she was um, brought up in a place called Fareed Court. Now Fareed Court was um, never part of the of British uh, the British Empire. It was one of the independent princely states. Uh, one of the smaller ones, as it happened, uh, about seventeen miles from what is now the India-pakistan border. Uh, and you know her her family it was a, a Sikh uh, state, the Maharaja was a Sikh um, uh, and her family was was Muslim. And at the time of partition, she was young, she was about seven. Uh, they had to move pretty sharpishly out of Fareed court and take the uh, hairy sixty mile Journey across to um, to the border, uh, and in that time, as you'll know, uh, there was a lot of violence um, and in, and internecine uh, interracial, intercultural violence. neighbors turned on each other and And my mum's story uh, includes a moment where she, at the age of seven, together with her aunts. Um, and her, her, uh, her mother had passed away by this stage, but aunts and uncles and cousins um, were bundled into a kila, which is a fort uh, that the uh, maharaja um, would uh, uh, control. They knew the family; they they knew the court. It was a small place, and they were guarded by his soldiers. And the fort was just a circular with a couple of rooms inside very basic and the crowds were coming and um my mom recounts how the the and it became then a sort of family story the soldiers were told you know if the door breaks then you need to kill everybody inside the room holy cow uh yes yeah wow. um and, and you know there was a lot as a sense of the kind of violence and it would be better to go by a bullet than to go by uh, any sort of other more extended uh, maybe perhaps more tortuous means um, as as it happened they were able to get out uh, they had no sort of clothes with them and um, other than what they had uh, it's not a many people had much worse stories they got to the border and um, with her uncle was in the civil service. Her father was in the now pakistani army. um they were able to get accommodation and my mom tells a story that um they had no they had no clothes, so the aunties um took curtains down and turned the curtains into uh clothes so she and her cousins for a few weeks <laughs> were all wearing uh reused curtains um, so so that is um the that origin story and and we're going to talk about you know sort of background and, and, and career but one interesting detail was that um 48 years after partition um I got to know uh, a guy who was the chief marketing officer of Apple at the time. His name was uh Sachiv Chahil and we were chatting and I was telling my story and uh this background story and he said my auntie was a Maharani of Freed Court during partition. No way. <laughs> and this man who I met when I was 36, when my mum was um, 50, uh, how old was she? 19, 63 years old. Um, his family was from there. And I was able to get them on a Zoom call uh, about six months ago. And she was able to talk about what she remembered from Freed Court. And he was able to, Share some of his memories, although he's much younger, he wasn't sort of uh, a contemporary of hers by any means so that the sort of loop continued, and it kind of brings back to
1: you know what you're all about is using technology in ways that to you know bring stories and people together, and you did that for your own family like that must have been such a seminal moment for your mom and you know to get to uh, you know talk to someone who's been through the
0: same situation that you know she did, yeah. Well, you know, I think what was fascinating for her was that um and this speaks a lot to what you um you you talk about. I mean, my mom um grew up with Sikhs all around her because she was she was, you know, in this Sikh state and she was used to their look, their 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 bearing, their, their turbans, their their style of voice. And you go to Pakistan and that's not going to happen. Especially not in post independent Pakistan and when she saw him, it broke on on zoom you know he's twenty years younger than her it brought back to her those um those emotions she had had as a child and of course for him he 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 understands what an elder is. And so he knows how to speak to her, and he he is trying to tell the Freed Court story now, as the the independent the individual stories of these uh, um, independent states is being lost as we move forward. And he's sort of running a project around that and around how partition divided um, communities that had lived together for thousands of years. So it was a really emotional um, moment for me to sort of observe and sit and and watch watch them because my mother hasn't been back to free court and she's now of an age where that won't happen um so to have for her to have that touch point i think mattered uh, quite a great deal
1: yeah i can imagine so azim how did that identity those stories of your parents how did
0: that influence you growing up yeah um well it, it's so it's interesting. So my parents are, are married. Um they're in um uh in the new Pakistan and they moved to the UK. So my mum, my you know, is a has an undergraduate degree in, in economics, she speaks English, my dad speaks English, they come over to the UK um and they they, they go to work here and they have um one daughter born in the UK. They go back, decide to go back to Pakistan, and I never quite figured out why they decided to go back, but they did go back, and they had my a second daughter in Pakistan, and they, their timing was terrible because um, it was the moment where Pakistan was saber-rattling, and there was the sixty six war with India, which Pakistan didn't do very well in. It's a sort of general trope of Pakistan's wars with India. Uh, and so they came back to the UK, and they were sitting in the UK for a while, and um and, and come 1971, and I think this is relevant, I feel this is really relevant to my story, um, they're getting a bit itchy about just being in the UK and they think there's more they can do. And they've both got this interest in, um, you know, rural economics and development. And so my dad takes a job um, for the British, I um, think, the Overseas Development Administration, which doesn't exist anymore. It's a bit like USAID. It's like a development aid group. To go to Zambia, which had become independent in 1964, to help set up some of the market institutions that are needed to kind of get the economy from basically being run by sort of hoodlum imperialists into something that's a bit more self sufficient. So they shoot off to, um, to Zambia, where I am born. So I'm born in Zambia um, to someone who emigrated to India, to the UK, and then went off on an expat posting. So I'm a I'm both a first and a second generation immigrant to the UK, which is quite weird because then I finally come to the UK in 1980 and I I have this very mottled, strange, patchwork background. Yeah, yeah.
1: And then what was it like uh, coming to the UK in 1980? Did you, you know, one of the things I'm so curious about is identity, right? Um, Did you feel British? Did you feel Pakistani? Did you feel, you know... um,
0: any and, you of know, the other patchwork like what was that like growing up well let me tell you about what it was like when i landed uh on august the 30th 1980 uh Heathrow airport um and uh had the, the the signs were if you've been to Heathrow, they're black on yellow they were still black on yellow then and we were met by my my cousins my dad el- dad's eldest brother um and the the two el- older sons who would have been in their early 20s and uh they handed me i was a skinny little thing um uh 42 pounds or 45 pounds which for like an eight-year-old kid is terrible right um and they handed me a chocolate bar dairy cadbury's dairy milk and i wow i never tasted anything like that uh before you must have devoured it <laughs> in, a, in a heartbeat and then for decades thereafter i mean now i'm always running in an attempt to right the wrongs of the 80s um so i i didn't um i didn't really associate with being uh english or british uh i had a an accent that was um a cross between quite a deep African accent and quite a an, uh, Pakistani accent. Um, and not of a modern Pakistani kid who's grown up with MTV, but like, no, not not that at all. Uh, and I'd come from a really international school. So my school, which was the International School of Osaka, had um, students from over 130 countries back in the day when the UK- USSR was still one country, and so was the Yug- Yugoslav Republic, right? So there were only 170 countries worldwide. And um, it was incredibly international. Uh, pupil and student um, cohort, so I had no idea of hom- homogeneity um, in in any sense of what was going to hit us when we got to the the UK. Um, and in a strange way, I felt closer to America culturally because the school was an American-owned school, or they run by the British sy- system. So all of our textbooks were kind of American, and I knew about. Um, Davy Crockett and Harriet Tubman and this la- Woody Woody. What's a good Woody Guthrie song? This land is your land. This land is our land. Yeah, I mean, I knew those words at the age of seven, but I didn't know like much about British uh, uh, culture. So it was a very. Now I re- reflect on it, it's a very very confusing um mo- moment in time to to arrive. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Got it. That that must have been wild. I can that visual of you as an eight-year-old on Heathrow, like that that sticks in my memory because so many people have had that uh that phase of that of their life where they just don't know like who they are and finding who they are going to be. And then so fast forward through your life growing up, um, did you always have an interest in technology or was that something you uh, gathered later on in life?
0: So the um the Intel four thousand and four chip. Um, which is the, the first mass-produced microprocessor, um, was released in October uh, 1971, um, and I was born in 1972. Uh, and so I'm a child of the microprocessor revolution. I first saw a computer in 1979. Amazingly, um, my next-door neighbor got a kit computer running CPM um, I don't know how the hell this is. It was actually a Sikh guy um, who lived next door to us. We lived in a in a set of houses. There was a Gujarati family on the left. We were a Punjabi family and next to us was a Sikh family. Um, and he and he brought this thing back and you, know, you plugged it into the TV and and so on. Um, and so we ended up getting like a Binotone games console. How we got it in Zambia where there's no global supply chain. I have no idea. It arrived. I played Pong on it. Um, and then I got my first computer in... Um, 1981 it was a zx81 Uh, i've got it here i can show you hold on yeah here it is zx81 still work wow that Um, looks good (laughs) yeah um so i think i i got interested um quite uh quite early on and my my schools um both my junior school and my high school uh my junior school literally had a computer uh sharp MZ80K. and then my high school had over three hundred computers uh, the b b c micro computer um because of a deal a relationship of some teacher or something or other and um so i i did a lot of uh a lot of computing um you know when i was younger yeah so i got i got interested early um, and, and, you know, even for something like the internet, I was on the internet from the age, from 1991, when I think there was probably fewer than 10 million people on it.
1: <laughs> you were a first mover on the internet. That's, that's huge. Um, and then how, how did your career progress after that? Did you, you realize that, okay, you have affinity, you have a liking for, for this uh, type of space. Where did you go next? Or what was the, what was the big a big
0: break for you or something that you, that you think about in your career that started it all? Well, I was thinking about something that you said about doctors and engineers and, and, and lawyers um, uh, before we, we did this recording, which is that, you know, sometimes that often where uh, people are, are sort of pushed and, and, and kind of driven and, The thing that was interesting, I think, about my um, my childhood was that I was really interested in computers, and I did things then. And now that I know the history of computing, and I think I can't actually believe that I was doing what I did then at home on the weekends. And I I had no context because I lived in this town sixty miles from um, London, and there was no real industry. No one to say this is kind of amazing. No one was doing computer science. Uh, And but my other passion, which comes, I think, from my my parents background is that I've been really interested in, um, economics and, uh, and philosophy and politics, not from a party poli- party political perspective, but from, um, a sort of power perspective and had been, um, despite not showing that in my sort of academics. So when I, um, went to university, um, even though I was very strong in the sciences and virtually all of the as I looked at with the sciences the idea of doing computer science was completely forbidden um, not so much by my parents um, uh, but much more by the school uh, because that it wasn't it, it, the school itself wanted us to make safe, safe choices so I was really good at chemistry I should go and do, do that um, but equally I didn't I also didn't want to feel like I wanted to be um, pegged down a funnel where I would have become an industrial chemist at Pfizer and in sandwich in Kent. And, you know, well, I mean, what I didn't realize, of course, is that my cohort went off and kind of worked on things like, uh, you know, Viagra and, you know, God knows what else, but, um, (laughs) uh, the, so when I went to university, I actually, um, went in to read law. Um, but I probably went in to read law because, it would have been too much of a risk to do the degree that I changed to, which was a, a, an Oxford degree called um, Politics, Philosophy, and Economics. So, when I when I got there, I did PP I, I changed to PPE, which the university hated. Um, they they supported me in the end after spending a year studying law, um, and and it was an attempt by me to keep myself broad. Right, but if I had gone off and done chemistry or something like that, I would have been very, very narrow at that point. Um and, and what it did though is it closed off my ability to actually go back into the sciences. And I think one of the problems with science education is that once you get off the, on on the off ramp, you can't get back on. Um and but that's not so true with something like economics or philosophy where you can kind of jump back in when you when you want. And so I I I took PPE um uh uh, at Oxford in the end. And and but I was also I audited such as you could um computing courses. I took us the C course um while I was there. And um I did quite a lot with computers um and with the internet in those early early 90s. So when I when I graduated um you know I had defeated um any framing of what it what it is for a South Asian to graduate a good university because um you know, I had, um, still remember very clearly, 57 job rejections. Um, so I, I left university, you know, top two, three university in, in Europe um, with a good degree, with a university prize, um, having edited student papers, um, having run and created societies. Uh, and also I could program a computer. Um, I did not get. A single job offer uh, at all. Wow. No bank, no management consultancy. Those were the two big areas. No graduate program, no journalism program, um, no internships such as they were. And in the end, um, a magazine called Yachts and Yachting um, offered me uh, three mornings a week to come in and sort of when the receptionist was off, man the reception and make the coffee uh, for people. So it was really it was quite interesting, and it was quite a a surprise and um, uh, and and a shock. And I think it was the price of the idiosyncrasy of the the path that I had chosen to take. If I hadn't have done the student paper, if I hadn't have done the programming, um, it would have been much more straightforward for a management consultancy to look at my CV and say, "Yeah, yeah we know what to do with this 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 creature."
1: But you know, the funny thing is. Probably at that time was pretty disheartening to see, like you know, what your career <laughs> aspects or prospects were. But now, when you look back, probably all those inputs had a role into shaping to who you are and where your worldview and your insights are. Would you agree? Like, if you took, if you look at the hindsight, like, were they all elements of who
0: you are today and, and how it shaped you? Um. Yeah, I mean, I mean, they are. There are also things that you don't real you don't realize so um I had been I had been setting things up and starting things um for from the age of 12 or 13 and I didn't realize I didn't know that and now when I've been hiring people for which I have been for the last 25 years I see it on CVs particularly I mean initially with Americans and now with more and more Brits uh, people going, oh, yeah, I set up the student paper when I was 14 and, and I organized the X society when I was Y. That's what's going to make me a great entrepreneur because I know how to start things. Now, I'm not saying I'm a great entrepreneur. I mean, I'm I'm not, but I am an entrepreneur. <laughs> and uh, when I look back on my CV and I go, oh, yeah. So I remember what happened at high school um, when they wouldn't let me join the official debating society because whatever, whatever reason there was. So me and my friend Alexis set up the debating, a different debating society yeah. and we got people going. Yeah. <laughs> we get, they came to our society and we got our debates. And you know what? That's what entrepreneurs do. And the same was true at, um, at university. You know, we, we, we set up a new paper to compete with the 100-year-old incumbent and we set out to beat it. And in many metrics, we did within a couple of years. Um, and, and we had this sort of initially ragtag group of rejects were not allowed to work for the other paper, and it turned out that they did great work. And many of them are now on the you know front the national nightly nightly news in the UK. And I can think, God, I knew you when you were nineteen and writing news stories. Um. So so I think the the the, the patterns that we choose to select um, can come together to make a story. Um, equally, I mean, I may have ended up being a, a you know a good accountant running a mid tier firm in in the seventh largest town outside of London, and we would have gone back through my history and found the bridge points that said, oh, yeah, this is why you're going to become an accountant. But, but I think there was something in there. There was something in the sense that um, even though I've been credentialed by having been to a very good school and a, and a good university, um, I don't set much stop by um, the need to do things within an institution um and and that is i think a kind of entrepreneurial um aspect that i've probably i think i've probably developed um in the face of defeat and competition um you know that oh this door's closed to me this door's closed to me oh this person's better at this than i am she writes much better stories than i do he's a better negotiator and i have to find my way through in order to survive and that process um that process means that that you let fewer things stop you, but only because you've been stopped by everything else.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You develop this like resilience. Um, yeah. So I, I want to switch gears and talking about exponential view, right? Um, you know, it has probably grown <clears throat> far, far bigger than you've ever imagined when you first started. Can you talk us through, tell us the listeners of how that came together and, mm-hmm. you know, what the story
0: behind exponential view is? Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's it, in a way, it's, it's it's kind of it's me. Um, I've always been interested in economics and in development, and um, I've always been interested in uh, technology, and I've always been interested in geopolitics. I mean, the first geopolitical thing I can remember, and I was not even eight, was Operation Eagle Claw, was when Jimmy Carter sent those um, uh, U.S. troops um, on the the H-53C stallions to rescue the Iranian, the the hostages in the embassy and it crashed. The thing failed, it crashed, eight soldiers died. And then they they developed all these special forces um, that could do that sort of thing. I mean, I remember that as a a seven-year-old. So and what I do now in Exponential View is I talk about technology and we try to figure out how it's impacting society more broadly. And um, when I look back over my career, I have you know several years that touch on things like regulation and working as a journalist and the guardian and the economist and in media, and then several years as a investor and as a technology entrepreneur. So it all it kind of it, it, it maps back to sort of chaos of what I was interested in as a as a child. Um and so having um sold my last startup um in at the end of 2014, which was a startup that did machine learning over large amounts of data for for marketers. Um we I just I felt that I needed to do something that was a bit broader, just spend my time. And I was working in the Acquirer, which is a fantastic company called Brandwatch. And um and I thought if I just start to write a newsletter, now I should just give you a context. So I I first produced an internet, my first like published internet blog stuff was in about 90 19- so I and my first newsletter product that was launched was in '96. So I keep coming back to the newsletter as a format. Um I, I quite like it. And and so I um I just came back and I put this newsletter together and I sent it to 20 friends. It was actually called Azim's Take on Disruption originally, because I, I didn't know what to call it. Um and I didn't have any ambitions. I just thought I'm gonna do this because I disappeared for eight years building a company and I focused 100% on it and I just need to do something that allows me to express myself. That was all, that was the beginning and the end of it.
1: And how did it evolve from that point? Um, You know, it started as something you sent to your friends, but did it take on a life of its own over time and, you know, to get where it is today? Like, what's the evolution been like?
0: Yeah, it's, I mean, I sent it to 21 people uh, initially and then Within a few months, we were up at about a thousand people receiving it, and and a couple of people were really helpful. They were much younger than me. They were both trying to become a venture capitalists, so early stage investors, and um, you know, one of them was just saying to me, you know, this is really good, and you should keep doing this. and And at the time, there weren't that many newsletters. There was um, in technology, there were two others that mattered. Um, and another was a um, a woman who was who is now a venture capitalist, who strangely, um, his parents lived opposite mine, uh, oh, sorry, opposite me for a few years, but I never knew her. And then when we were kind of getting to talk to each other, she said, Oh, yeah, no, I live there. And I said, like, Oh, well, then I know your dad. And uh, he's kind of grumpy, isn't he? Uh, and, and she said, You know, what she said to me, she had studied the same degree as me at university. And she said, You know, the thing is that you're the only person who is bringing that political economy take to technology who actually understands the technology industry? Because, you know, you've been in it for, since 1994, right? You you've, you knew Mozilla and Netscape and covered the IPOs and you worked at Silicon Valley and, and so on. Um, and that for me was like the moment where I thought, oh yeah, there is something distinctive here. And and then I started to spend more, more time on it. But I was full-time I and mean, I had full-time work um, until the first 3 years right so i was writing this on the side i was reading um you know hundreds of thousands of words every month of and if people haven't read Ex- exponential view you know i'm as 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 likely to put in an academic paper about um you know uh new ways of thinking about gdp that's been published in some economics journal as I am to put the latest TechCrunch funding news of a new hot startup as I am to review uh, a deep learning breakthrough. So it's hard work and there's a lot of reading involved and there's a lot of talking to people um, involved. And I was doing that alongside my, my full time job. But it was when the, you know, a few audits started coming in. Uh, Mark Andreessen, who invested, invented the first web browser, he um, uh, he tweeted it saying you know just liked it Fred Wilson who's an investor in um in New York one of the top venture capitalists in the world wrote a blog post about how he liked it and those things really sort of inflected the audience um and and so we find ourselves today it's um 2020 and coming up to it's 21 actually 2021 so it's a sixth year anniversary in um in about two months um time and we've got a about 56,000 people who read it on one of the platforms and 150,000 who read it on another platform and there's a podcast and there's a a private community and there are some other things that have come out around it is there a, a Zima moment where you're like wow like it's like a pinch
1: me moment like i didn't realize how big this has become or is there something about the the about the the whole podcast and the newsletter or
0: anything that makes you really proud any moment that you can think of, you know, it, I, I think the um, thing is, it remains really hard work, and it remains fragile, and um, it only succeeds by my showing up um, every single day. Uh, and um, there's, uh, you know, there's a line um, from a guy called Colonel Hal Moore, um, and Hal Moore uh, was the unit commander of the. First air mobile uh, battalion um that the US ever had. Uh, and he commanded that battalion um in the Aya Drang Valley in 1964, when the first time US regular forces fought the North Vietnamese regular forces rather than you know, the, the Viet Cong um guerrillas. Uh and Almore was a really um uh inspirational leader and he wrote a, a book about uh Experiences, um, and of course, there's the film where, where Mel Gibson plays him, and he has this one line, which is, um, there is there is always one more thing you can do to alter the odds of success in your favor, and after that one more thing, and after that one more thing, and after that one more thing, and um, and another way of putting this is from the the, the film series John Wick, where uh, someone comments, it's really hard to stop a mat, it's really hard. To stop a man who doesn't give up. Um and and I think that as an entrepreneur, the that that lesson, the Hal Moore line, which I remind myself of regularly, there's always something more you can do, um is is there as the kind of underlying clock speed of the uh of, of life. And so there were pinch me moments when certain people um emailed and we're in, we're in contact. Um, just you know, when you get a senior executive who's built one of the biggest companies in the world or the dominant company in their field, saying this is the thing that I read and it's been bad news for the Economist or for the Wall Street Journal, or um, you know, I always read this before my broker research. Um, you you feel that is in a moment of of excitement, um, it, but but I think it's created a a moment creates a moment of obligation as well because people are giving you their time. Everybody is giving me their time. I mean, it's not just these sort of you know big wing elite success people. I mean, everyone who reads it gives me their time so that constructs an obligation. And so um I I just I'd kind of take the view that you have to just continue to show up um, every single day uh and keep going. Uh, and there's always something extra that you can um, you can do. And there are moments you just don't have the energy to do that. And you're just like, well, things are going to have to go off the boil for a few weeks while I re- sort of catch up. But, yeah, no, uh, I mean, yeah, so I, I think just to kind of wrap that back up, there were a few years ago a few proof points that told me something new is happening. Um, and what they end up doing, though, is they create um, a higher obligation on on me to keep doing things that are useful.
1: Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, so what I'm curious to know is you process and take in all these informations from economics mm-hmm. to technology to all these different uh, disciplines. Is there something you can tell our listeners that you have really caught your, your eye That's ex- you're excited about? If you could boil down to just one or two things that, you know you've seen that you're just like you cannot get out of your head because you're you're excited about can you share that with us you,
0: do you mean technologies or do you mean
1: yeah anything you saw in your newsletter or um or you wrote about or or because you've just you have you're on the like the bleeding edge of this you know and people listening may not be mm-hmm. is there something that you can talk about in the future that you're excited about um that either show up in your newsletter
0: or not mm. so so the there is um, so there's a thesis, right? There's a thesis behind the newsletter, uh, and um, the thesis is that we are transitioning into what I call the the exponential age um, from the industrial age. And the industrial age was was built on these industrial technologies that, um, as a result of how they operated, um, required a certain arrangement of our political and economic. Um, systems, uh, by which I mean, you know, you have d- diminishing marginal returns. Uh, the if you're a if you're a consumer goods company, the you know the one millionth ton of sugar syrup that you buy is is going to be more expensive than the first time that you buy, right? Because you get this, it, you just run out of supply, right? Once you get these economies of scale, it, the curve bends, and that's Marshallian economics, right? And because of that, we organize our companies in particular ways. And because the companies are organized this way, this is the way labor relationships are. And because labor relationships are this way, you express that in power and politics in a different way. So it kind of builds up from what the technology enables you to do. And my argument is that we've got new technologies and we have new technologies that are changing dramatically, um, exponentially so, and they behave very, very differently. And just as we... Saw that the car or the telephone or electricity changed not just the way industry worked, but the way politics worked. And so true for the printing press, we should expect the same sort of change to happen now. But that the problem, there are reasons why that change doesn't happen um, in a kind of controlled way. Uh, And that, that reasoning is because a gap emerges between what are the potentials of the technology. The technology creates things that we don't even have words for. The first movies were called what talkies, right? Uh, that that um, you know, in the first newscasts had presenters in bow ties reading the newspaper, um, uh, and it. And if we don't have words for them, we can't build the institutions that allow us as a society to, you know, harness them properly. So that's the um, that's the underlying thesis of exponential view the newsletter it will be in the book that's released um, later this this year um, and the, uh, the the thing is that the what I've learned in putting this together first of all is that there were lots of concepts that were unclear to people about why technology changes the way it does and why we should we should really believe in this idea of exponential improvement. Um, the second thing that came across was that um, I think this is a real battle of, of power because the people who build the technology are the ones who now get the power. So much as they might want to democratize it, in a sense, they create a set of formal and informal gates about how people can understand it and ask the right questions. Um and then, and then there's a third aspect to that, which is a flip side of the same coin, which is that people who are not involved in technology have abrogated their responsibilities during this transition for all the hard thinking to be done by the technologists. And then they wake up and they moan about YouTube's recommendation algorithm. And it's like it's been going on for a decade and it was all in the public domain. But you are watching Celebrity Love Island or America's Got Talent instead of reading the machine learning books and asking the critical questions. Uh, and so, so I think what I what I'm trying to do in the newsletter is both describe what's going on um, in a way that asks allows people to ask the right questions, but also speak to both sides of this these two culture divides. Um, one of which is the uh, sort of the world of technologists who build it, the VCs, the startup founders, the researchers, and the other is the group of people who live in the other world are impacted by it but don't have a voice as participants and because they don't have the language and it's like can you give them enough so that they can ask better questions and i think people are asking better questions i don't think it's just because of my newsletter with its limited reach but it's because other things have shifted
1: yeah that's exactly right and and i think that thesis is is so right because you know the pace of of change has just accelerated even since when i was born you know in in the 1990s and um you know, and just to see that evolve, and how people's um, people's reaction to the technology and and the changes is is also big, and how much more involved they are because they have access to information like your newsletter and other things that they may not have had before.
0: So, um, I think that's great. That's great. Now, you asked about a technology that's a breakthrough. I'm going to just going to give you one just please, for a second, please. which is. Um, so, we have. Um, We've gone through this period where where computation has really dramatically shifted um, and changed. Like every ten years, it gets you know a hundred times more powerful, and it's going to continue to, to do that. Um, the but I think where we're going to apply it to is in, in the realm of what we've previously considered biology, and so we have developed all the amazing things we've done in biology, like kind of. Um, crop yields and, um, you know, medicines and so on with really, really crude tools, super crude tools. And we've now started to apply the engineering way of thinking to the problems of biology, whether it's food production or disease reduction or, uh, you know, the production of materials and chemicals and oils and lubricants. And we're starting to... Rethink how those different sectors of the economy uh work, and it's quite fundamental um so I think some of the most exciting areas will be in this in this general approach of taking a kind of computer science um empirical engineering driven approach to problems that we thought what lived in the biological uh realm and and I think given how important that biological realm is to us because it's where we live as biological creatures um That will be a pretty dramatic uh, set of changes over the coming years. That's
1: that is going to be wild to see, and you see that already. Like, uh, you know, when you hear things about the CRISPR technology or things like just this Mm -hmm. vaccine development, right, in record time. You know,
0: yeah, it's amazing.
1: Yeah, it's incredible, and like, and and people are seeing it with their own eyes. And I think that is going to be just a more testament to how technology and and how these. Moving from crude tools to more advanced tools can affect your day-to-day life, you know, as, as we work through these things. Um, wonderful. So, I, in the last uh, few minutes, um, I'd love to switch to our rapid-fire questions. And again, these are questions we ask all our guests, and I'm excited to hear, uh, Azim, what you have to say. So, the first question I have is, um, is there an item that you have bought recently, item or service that you've bought recently that has dramatically improved your life?
0: yeah, so I hurt my um my leg. uh no serious nothing really serious. It's um called the Vmo muscle, and it's what uh, runs on the inside of your leg and it aligns your patella uh, and just from running too much. And so I couldn't run while I uh, did sort of rehab, uh which basically means strengthening the leg for about three months. And um, I may have told you that I ate a lot of dairy milk chocolate when I was eight and first arrived in the u k. so I have um. Sort of some sins of the past that I need to keep in t- intact, intact, in control. Um, and so, in order to kind of maintain a cardiac workout, I had an Oculus Quest Two, which on it has a game called Fit XR, which is a VR boxing game. And it sounds really dumb, uh, but it was absolutely incredible. And I would do 600 to 650 calorie an hour workouts in it um, while I couldn't run. And that's that's kind of what you would get at a decent paced long run, right? Six to six fifty calories an hour. Uh and um, you know, it was great because I didn't put any pressure on my leg and was able while I couldn't run and actually found it very painful to even walk down the stairs um to do four or five hours of that strenuous exercise every uh every week. And and now actually now that I can run again, I don't really pull out the quest um uh much. But yeah, that's one example.
1: But that's a that's a great answer. That's a great answer. I love that. Um okay. Second question is when you think of a South Asian person you look up to, it can be in your field or um outside your field. Who would you say comes to mind and why?
0: It's really I, I've been really blessed by um getting to meet some really, really interesting uh people, not not just my my family and my my wife's family, who have a, an amazing story um, of their uh, of their own, um, there's someone who's had a big impact. I'm not going to share his his name because he's a very private person uh, on on me, and he's one of these people I think that everybody um, needs in their uh, needs in their life. so he's um a really, really thoughtful person who probably considers himself. I mean, I would certainly consider him a philosopher, um, and he has this habit of asking a very deep question of you that somehow engages you, and you sort of feel like you're you are kind of a wind up toy that's just been wound enough, and now you've got to get going. Um, and and he's he's able to to do that, and he's really really thoughtful. Um, and generous with his when you know, generous with his feedback. And so he matches this ability to come in and basically say, Your work is crap, try <laughs> harder, with a hmm, such a powerful idea. And if you were also able to take these things on board, I think it would go even further. Um, and it's it's he just has that um that moment, that kind of electric energy, uh moments that he's able to bring to bear the question. and he happens to be um yeah he's from uh from sort of india india africa type of uh
1: oh great, locale.
0: great. yeah that's that's wonderful okay
1: um next question is is there a movie or book, a that has had the most impact on you um and it could be a recent book
0: um or something just comes to mind well, I mean, academically, there is a book which I'm just looking, turning around to look for, because I normally keep it within arm's reach of um, me. <laughs> I seem to have maybe it's on the I think it may be on the other side of my desk. That is so strange. It's normally right there. Um, which is a book by a Venezuelan economist called Carlota Perez, which is called Technological Revolution and Financial Capital. And I think it's one of the best books that's written on technology um, at all. Uh, and it, you know, in in a sense of its influence on me, um, you know, it's, it's it's influenced me because I use it in my work and have done for more than a decade, uh, nearly every day. Um, and in that book, Alotta, quite a kind of technical book, makes the point that um, uh, general purpose technologies impact our economies in a set of very distinct phases that are related to the deployment of capital and they start with a phase that is called the deployment, the um, installation phase. And in the installation phase, no one sees any productivity gains because you're building out the railroads, but you're not traveling on them. Because people then start to see the potential of this thing, you get a lot of speculation, you get hype, you get a bubble, and after the bubble comes a crash. And then after that crash, and people have righted their balance sheets, you're sitting there with a bunch of infrastructure, whether it's the internet or computing infrastructure or railway infrastructure that's laid out that's just waiting for the applications to be built, and then you get to the deployment phase, which is when you end up seeing golden ages uh, of gains uh, emerge. So Carlotta's Otter's book um, uh, was published in, I think, 2001, uh, Technological Revolutions and Financial Capital, is um, you know something I think about actually probably most days
1: Awesome, cool, yeah. We'll we'll absolutely link that, and thank you for the thesis behind it. Okay, these last two questions are, are some of my favorites, so I'm excited to hear what you what you have to say. Um, what advice would you give an up and coming South Asian person who's interested in doing something similar to to you in terms of entrepreneurship, technology, economics, uh, you know, writing, newsletter? What advice would you give them, and why? You know, practice
0: makes. Um makes things better uh and uh so showing up and starting it and getting it done and doing it regularly uh it helps you learn and it's through the process of learning that you um you get you get better at something i mean no one knows anything at any point um and it's only when you've done it a lot Uh, and then i think for individual um uh individual people you need to be able to get the feedback reflect on your own style uh, and make sure that you can adjust what you do. I mean, there's a very simple model of what is intelligence that comes out of people who think about artificial intelligence, which is it's about the ability for a system to read its environment, to understand its goals, to read its environment and figure out what it needs to do in its environment to achieve its goals, then to do that thing. And then ideally to figure out where it now is, what it's, what its new environment is, what has changed And then to do the next action, and ideally that next action is slightly different from the one before because you've learned a little bit. And I think that that is a kind of definition of intelligence that can be applied to anybody who wants to to, to do something. I mean, to do it, you have to get started and you have to be able to take the appropriate level of risk and the appropriate level of discomfort, which is um, not too little, but just not too much. Um, and you have to figure out what that is. And in, in in figuring that out, you have to figure that out yourself by the same process, right? The same learning process of taking a small experiment, seeing how well it worked, figuring out, failing it, and so on. So I, I think in the old days, what people would say would be, you know, better. you can't argue with a degree from Princeton. Um, and uh, that, that may be true. Um, but in a sense, if you don't have that auto reflexivity um, where you are able to reflect back on yourself and take lots of small bets that get better and better and more well informed and you become better at the kind of bet you can take, you get better at the kind of environment you can read um, you 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 will constantly rely on the fact that you have a certain set of letters behind your name, and at some point you'll be shown up
1: yeah. That's very true. That's very true. And I, I love how, you know, you know, it's not only sometimes you have to find what you want, but also convince your parents that, hey, this is something that I want to do. And I, the traditional model of education and, you know, prestige sometimes won't apply to this new world and it's okay. So I love that answer. And, and I appreciate, you know, blazing the path for so many people who, who want to do that, but may not have, you know, the credentials or the mentorship to do that. Okay. Um, any final ask for the audience?
0: Anything you'd like to leave them with before we close? You know, I think we're, we're going into a uh, a really, really dynamic um, point in history. Uh, and and it may last five years. I'd be surprised if it's short as that. Um, it may take 20, 25, 30 years, and there'll be lots and lots of opportunities. Um, I think, the apart from this idea of, you know, how do you become how you maintain an adaptability and a learning and a vectoring into the things that you do well um, and how do you discover that um, you do need to have a solid basis for uh, of tools that work in whatever domain that you want to you want to be in so that's not necessarily saying um, you know you've got a, a pharmacy degree so you can fall back and being a pharmacist if it doesn't work out uh, it's about saying do you have the the kind of baseline thinking and action tools that matter roughly speaking in the path that you 're in, and some of those things we can enumerate because they are the things that you can learn in a course, right do you have basic probability and statistics, can you do sort of structured thinking? can you apply engineering methodologies? Do you have critical thinking? Do you know and know enough history? Um, are you going to get flummoxed if you have to talk to somebody about some CRISPR thing at a very high level? Um, uh, you know, do you know how to put an essay together and structure it uh, logically? Um, I mean, these are all what the Victorians used to call reading, writing, and arithmetic—the three R's. It's more, more, more complex today. But you have, you know, better education, better resources, better food, more time um, to master those skills. But I think people need to emphasize getting that kind of a, a toolkit. It's not a blocker if you don't have the toolkit because none of us are born with it. Um, some of the tools that I have and I use daily, um I've had to learn painfully slowly on the job uh in my late 30s, right? So in the over the last 10 years. So it's it's never it's never a journey that that stops. So I think that but I think that having a baseline of a of a toolkit and not feeling that you have to the end of what you need to know and therefore you go and apply it um I think is a really really important um role I think the other thing that's that's quite important is to sniff out the mentors who are going to work for you um and figure out how to work with them you don't always have the same mentor for a really long time because interests might diverge um uh but mentorship of some sort i don't have formal mentors but i have informal mentors who i can turn to for advice on x or y uh, becomes really really critical and i think the last thought i would make which is point is that um, you have to you kind of have to show up so you have to have a track record and when i was getting into going into my career having a track record was really hard because in order to prove that you could do the thing you had to get a job doing the thing and now there's nothing that you can't do, short of create your own nuclear power station, that you can't just do using the tools that are available because of the declining cost and the increasing capability of technology. Uh, and so you can st- literally start to do the thing um, early. And I think the, the reality that you have to, to to contend with is that when people in the market are doing the buying of whatever it is they're going to buy, your, you know, your Harvard degree uh is probably not going to beat the brilliant youtuber who 's in your domain who 's built up a following of half a million people uh and so there there you 've got a kind of a challenge of the value of the credential and again, this is not to turn down the value of the credential it 's just to say that um it's it 's got to be supplemented by showing up and and when asked well you you said you always said you're really interested in filmmaking. Let me see the films you've made, and you go, but I'm. That's why I'm applying for the job. Uh, that doesn't work anymore. I mean, it did work in perhaps in 1985. Um, yeah, so I think that was that was a compound answer uh, to say, acquire the toolkit, um, be prepared to acquire it over a long period of time, um, and make sure that even if well credentialed, you are doing the things around you that you need, and if possible, be supported by a mentor.
1: Wow. What a way to leave it. Thank you so much, Azim. This has been amazing. Thank you for your candor, for your stories, um, and all the insight you've done. And for everyone listening, we'll, we'll link to Exponential View. I hope you subscribe so you can hear directly from Azim. Where can people find you if they want to learn more?
0: If they want to learn more, go to Wikipedia or you know National Institutes of Health website or The Economist. <laughs> But if you want to find me on the internet, uh, I'm at Azeem on Twitter. I'm also on Clubhouse uh, as Azeem. Perfect. Perfect.
1: Thank you so, so much. We really appreciate it. If you'd like to hear more amazing stories on South Asians around the world, please check out SouthAsianStoriesPodcast.com and subscribe to our email list at SouthAsianStoriesPodcast.com. Thanks a lot and see you next time.